you would bow with me right now, and let's pray as we uh, head into the time in the Word. Father, as you know, at Scottsdale Bible Church, because we believe you've called us to do this, we, uh, we sing, we fellowship with each other, we hopefully love each other in the name of your Son, Jesus. We teach your Word, God. We believe through the eyes of faith, as well as some, with a lot of historical credibility, that the Bible you've given us has been handed down from you. It's your Word, it's your heart, it's your mind to us. And so, Lord, if we talk about anything at length around here, we talk about what your word has said to us so that we might rightly understand it and live it aggressively in our lives. And so, God, we thank you for our our time of singing and worship that hopefully has lifted our hearts and our minds to you and that we're now focused and we might now be ready to receive what you'd have to say to us. So may I have understood it rightly. Anything that I might say here today, Lord, that is not in line with your word may just fall on deaf ears. May all the other stuff get through, we pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Well, well, let me ask you a a terribly lead-in question that I think I already know the answer to, and that is that for those of you who are believers and followers of Christ here today, have you ever had anybody push back on your Christian faith? Let me see a hand raise, just just like maybe most of us. Um, Have you ever had anybody even mock your faith in Christ, even ridicule uh, how in the world you could believe in a God who is seemingly offended by sin to the point that he had to provide Jesus Christ as payment for forgiveness. If I don't miss my guess, many of us have had people push back on that over the years. I mean, people at the very least didn't understand it and had some tough questions at the very most did understand it and said, how in the world could you as a thinking person believe something like that? I can remember when I first came to Christ way back in 1981, I, um, about a year later, was just entering into college and I was home for the summer and I was visiting one of my buddies in Milwaukee and I took him to a very, very large church in the Milwaukee area. Here I am, a brand new Christian. He was about as pagan as pagan could get. And I thought, but this is a great church, a very well-respected preacher, a Stort Briscoe. And we went there and we heard him preach that day. And man, I'm telling you, the guy just hit it out of the park. I mean, even a brand new Christian, I was like, whoa. That was just awesome. And he talked about sin and the need we have for forgiveness and how Christ came and he gives us a clean conscience and a new lease on life. And I just thought, man, my friend's probably going to be going, Jamie, this is awesome. How do I sign up? So we were driving home to his house and, and, and he looked at me as I was driving around. He goes, you believe that? He goes, you really believe that? He goes, who's that guy to say that I'm a sinner? Who's he to say that somehow I've offended God? I don't feel any of that. He goes, Jamie, why do you believe this? Why would you believe in a dead guy who's 2,000 years old who you can't see today, you can't touch? It's not real. It's a fairy tale, Jamie, and he's not coming again. And you know what? We're hoping that this is a phase in your life and that the old Jamie someday will come back. By the old Jamie, he meant that decadent partying Jamie that they missed. You might want to let my friend know that it's been 30 years and it's not a phase, right? It's not a phase at all. You can clap at that. And, uh, and, and if I don't miss my guess, it's not a phase for you either. But the reality is we've all had people in our lives that have pushed back on our faith. And what you need to know if that's happening to you right now is that times never change. I mean, in every culture, in every age where people have talked about Jesus' words and who Jesus was, there have been some significant pushback. I mean, we got individuals in our day and age looking for in the screen like Richard Dawkins, author of the New York Times best-selling book, The God Delusion, who regularly takes Christians to task. We have had people throughout history in our country, even good-hearted, well-thinking individuals like Thomas Jefferson, our third president, who was a vocal skeptic of Christianity. 
We've had Western European rationalists, even in the late 19th century, like Bertrand Russell, who argued vehemently against Christianity and its claims. Even in the Old Testament times, like when people were writing the book that you and I read, the Bible, I mean, you had the Greek and Roman philosophers who publicly came against the claims of Yahweh and Jehovah in the Old Testament. I mean, folks, about every day and age, every culture has had its opponents of Christianity. And get this. Even when Jesus walked this earth, and just after he left, when they were writing the New Testament, people like Peter, James, John, Paul, Matthew, and Luke, uh, they had critics back then, too. And so if you can understand this, and I think we all can from our own lives and our even basic understanding of history, then you can understand what Peter is going to be writing about as we turn the page into chapter 3 in our study of Second Peter here this summer at Scottsdale Bible, because he's writing about the critics. He's writing about those who have come against, even mock, the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. And so if you've ever wondered how to answer those who have doubts, even strong and caustic doubts, then today's message is probably going to be for you. And so what I want to do in our time remaining here this morning is simply follow the flow of thought that Peter takes us through in the first 13 verses of 2 Peter 3. Because you see, I don't think we need to veer at all from the flow of thought that he gives us here because he's just tracking with people that are being critical of his faith and how to answer them in a cogent way. And so four things, four truisms that flow one from another in this text that are going to do nothing but help you know how to understand those who push back as well as how to answer them in a way that just might make sense. And so let's start with the most obvious thing, just to get us all on the same page. That's where Peter starts. And this is point number one on your outline. You're going to want to write this down if you take notes, and it's this. And that is that the centrality of our Christian hope is that just as Jesus came the first time for the forgiveness of our sins, he's going to come again to set things right. Uh, let me repeat this. I know it's a mouthful, but this is just so we understand what the issue is, the centrality of our Christian hope that, as we're going to see in a minute, really bothers some people who aren't followers of Jesus, is that just as Jesus came the first time, 2,000 years ago, offer us forgiveness of sins, the great hope is that he's going to come again to set everything right. And so look at how Peter starts off this chapter. He couldn't be more clear. Look at verses 1 and 2 of 2 Peter 3. He says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved, and both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now, if you're tracking with this, folks, you know that Peter's asking us to remember something here, right? And he's even asking us to be stirred up by something, which is just his first century way of get, saying getting fired up about something. He's saying, I want you to be really excited about something here. And what is it? It's the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of Jesus. And the key issue that Bible experts wrestle with at this point is, well, what precisely are these predictions from the Old Testament and what is the corollary commandment that Jesus has given in and through the apostles? And because chapter 3 here, the context, is all about the second coming of Jesus and the end-time predictions that go along with this, what obviously most Bible experts posit is that the predictions and the commandment here must have something to do with the fact that Jesus came once and that he's going to come again. It just makes sense that what we must remember, even get fired up about, is the promise that Jesus is going to come again. 
And that's exactly the context that Peter gives us here, that he's saying it's this promise, as we're going to see in a minute, that just gets all the scoffers and mockers of our faith bent out of shape. This hope that Jesus is going to come again with justice and even judgment. You see, folks, the Old Testament is chock full of predictions that someday God is going to come and set everything right. Uh, Joel chapter 1, verse 15, and chapter 2, verses 1 and 11 mentions three times what Joel refers to as the great and terrible day of the Lord. The day when God is going to show up on the scene and bring justice and judgment in light of all the evil that occurs in this world. And what you need to know is that Isaiah talked about it, Jeremiah talked about it, Ezekiel talked about it, Daniel talked about it. I mean, every major and minor prophet in the Old Testament predicted that someday God is going to come physically to this planet and bring the long-awaited justice that most every rational human being longs for in this fallen and unfair world of ours. Even Jesus, you need to know, talked about this coming of God, coming of Jesus in this way regularly in his teachings. Look at Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 to 44. He says, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know, get this, what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming, and at an hour that you do not expect. Jesus talked about his coming all the time. He told parables about vineyard owners who went away on a trip and were going to come back to the vineyard someday. He told parables about kings that have left their kingdom and are going to come back to their kingdom someday. I mean, even his very last message before he ascended into heaven after his resurrection was to this point, when through the angels it is said this Jesus, who was just taken up into heaven, is going to come the same way that you just saw him go into heaven. Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Folks, don't miss this. It's core to our Christian faith that he came once 2,000 years ago to forgive us of our sins, and now he's going to come again someday to bring justice and an end to all the shenanigans that we read about in the news and New York Times and CNN and all the things that bother us about the injustices in this world. It's the centrality of the Christian hope. He's going to return. And yet, isn't it interesting? that it's exactly this hope that gets mocked and even ridiculed in just about every culture that claims it, including Peter's culture. And and so look at how Peter goes on to describe this. Look at verses 3 and 4 of 2 Peter 3. He says this, he says, Knowing first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. I love that word scoffers here. It literally means someone who makes fun of something or someone. And before we judge that word too hard, do we all realize that we all do this at times in our lives, and some of us even more than others? I mean, all of us, even Christians, make fun of things in people's lives and sometimes even make fun of the people who believe certain things. We all scoff at times. This describes a person who is cynical, who's constantly questioning and doubting what others say is true. And not just doing so kind of innocently, but in a mocking, even a biting kind of way. So they don't just have doubts and questions, but they go even the next step and make fun of what others believe. And so in light of the issue of our Christian hope, 
And the second thing we need to realize then about this fallen world here is that here, here's what the mockers and the scoffers are doing, and that is that the rebuttal of a disbelieving culture is to dismiss God's intervening in this world. And that's what the scoffers and the mockers in Peter's day were doing, and we're going to see a link big time to our day today. That what they were scoffing at, what they were mocking, what they're basically saying is that God really doesn't intervene in this world. You guys are nuts for believing that. And look closely there at verse 4 and the logic that Peter uh, lays out here. I need you guys to see this. It's really twofold. First, he's saying that the, the scoffers are saying that all things in this world seem to be moving along on their own without any intervention from God himself. And so secondly, how in the world can Christians then say that he's going to intervene someday with a return and a judgment? I mean, he's not even involved now, so why do you think he's going to be involved in the future? I mean, don't miss this. In their view, we lived in a, in, live in a closed universe of cause and effect, where things like gravity and laws of nature prevail, and even moral laws of right and wrong with consequences for the wrong that you do. And they're saying it's been that way ever since the beginning, ever since the Old Testament when the saints died, and even since the dawn of creation. They're saying the world seems to function as it is without any influence or an effect of an interventionist God. And so why do Christians hang on to this hope that someday he's going to intervene and set things right? He hasn't seemed to intervene yet, so why do you think he's going to intervene in the future. That's what Peter's laying out here. That, that's what the scoffers and the mockers, that's our best argument against our faith in Christ and that he's coming again. And what you need to know, folks, this is very important, is that in our day and age, we have this exact same worldview. It's actually one of the most prominent worldviews in all of academia today, and it's comprised in people who call themselves naturalists and or deists. Naturalists and or deists. And I promise you, that you have friends, maybe family members, co-workers, fellow students, who would clearly be identified as naturalists and deists today. You see, a naturalist is simply somebody who believes that nature and science has given us a completely adequate explanation to all that there is. That science can tell us about origins, how we got here. It can tell us our purpose, what we're to do, why the world functions as it is, cause and effect in an evolutionary world. And most naturalists, not all, but most, dismiss any type of divine being, and so they're basically atheists. And modern-day academia is filled with them. And yet deists, interestingly, are those who believe in some type of God. They're not atheists. But you see, they believe that God might have created this world, but then has stepped out of the whole process and is just letting everything play out. And so a deist is somebody who says, well, yeah, there might be a God, and he might have existed before the Big Bang, but kind of like a guy who starts a ball rolling and just sort of watches it roll and let it do what he does. Deists say that God created this whole thing, but he's just sort of stepped back and doesn't intervene in the world and just lets it go on as it will. And what you need to know, folks, is that both naturalism and deism are two of the most popular and prevailing views within most academic circles here, especially in the Western world and in Western Europe and America. I mean, it's everywhere. A few years ago, I was at a, a conference in Washington, D.C. that was put on by Ravi Zacharias, who's an Indian-born apologist, a defender of the Christian faith. And I was there alone, and I was uh, getting ready for lunch, sitting at the table there, just kind of, you know, I mean, breakfast was three hours old, something, what's for lunch? And I'm sitting there at the table and, uh, and, and getting ready to, to, to go to lunch. And uh, I was reading a book that my dad and I were reading together. My dad, as I've told you guys, is basically a deist. 
in his worldview. And so we were reading a book on the Enlightenment by a historian by the name of Peter Gay, just kind of following the, the flow of intellectual thought here in America over the last few hundred years. And uh, one of the main speakers of that day, John Lennox, walked by my table, and I recognized him. He obviously didn't know me, but he stopped when he saw what I was reading. He said, oh, you're reading Peter Gay. He goes, you know, why would you be reading that book? And I said, well, I, I, I don't have a Clive Cussler novel that I'm reading right now, so that's why I'm reading this book. And, uh, and then I told him, really, you know, I'm reading it with my dad and all that other stuff. And, uh, and, and he said, wow. He said, you know, um, I got to tell you, Jamie, and, and this really blew me away. He said, um, the world that I live in, is just filled with deists. Uh, John Lennox, if you don't know, is a, uh, is, teaches mathematics at Oxford. He's got a PhD in Cambridge, so he's involved with a lot of the uh, academicians over there in, in Britain. And, and he said, almost to a person, every one of them, would say they believe in some type of God, some type of higher power, maybe some force. He said, but none of them believe that he intervenes in this world around us. That didn't surprise me. It shouldn't surprise you. You and I live in a world, and it doesn't just take academicians to hold this view, in which barroom conversations, in which water cooler conversations at work, conversations at school at the cafeteria, are all about people who say, yeah, 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 I believe in God, but I don't see his handiwork. I don't see him involved in this world of ours. It's the argument that Peter dealt with 2,000 years ago today. It's one that we deal with today in our world. And so the question responds, or the question becomes, once you get this, how do we respond? That's a $10 question. But what do we say to all of this that might be cogent and even reasonable? And though there are many things, folks, that we can respond to naturalists and deists with, I mean, there's been volumes of information written over the last 2,000 years on how to respond to this worldview. For our purposes this morning, I'll tell you what I want to do. I just want to track what Peter says and how Peter says we should respond. Because I think you're going to find that what Peter says here is pretty cogent and pretty reasonable. And though this is more of a summary statement, which we're going to flush out in just a second, here's what Peter basically argues. It's point three on your outline today, or in your notes here today. And that is that the biblical response is that God has intervened with justice in the past, and he certainly will again. That's a simple response. We're going to see how much teeth this has in a minute. That the biblical response is, is that their premise that God has not intervened in this world can be shown to be wrong, and that also, because of that, he is going to intervene again in this world of ours. So look at how Peter goes on to argue this in verses 5 to 10 of 2 Peter 3. First, look at verses 5 to 7. He says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. And so please notice here, folks, that Peter is arguing that God has intervened in this world in at least three historic ways, each of which gives us evidence and confirmation that he certainly will intervene again. And what are those three ways? Well, these three ways are creation, the flood, and as we'll see in a minute, he's even hinting to Christ here. Creation, flood, and Christ. That's his argument. And so first, notice that Peter says, and I quote, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water. It's creation. 
He's taking the deists to task. And he's basically saying that you agree that God made this world, that he might have been the force beyond the big bang. Please recognize, deists, that he made it big, that he made it vast to show the extent of his creativity and his interventionist capabilities. I mean, just pause there for a moment, folks, and recognize that Peter isn't just saying here that God made the earth. I mean, we evangelicals all bicker back and forth on how old the earth is and the age of the earth and, you know, what God made and all that stuff. Well, well, that's a given. Genesis 1 talks about that. But Peter's saying he didn't just make the earth. He made all the heavens. Do you see that there? Made all the heavens, the entire universe. And Peter's main argument is, is that a God who would make a universe like this already has shown that he's willing to intervene in this creation. So why would we think that he had stopped now? That's the flow of his argument. That if you agree he made this place, then why do you think he would step back? It makes more sense, given the vastness and the awesomeness and the creativity of this creation, that he would remain involved. You know, one of the things that um, helps us to really get this is when we understand how vast the universe and creation is. I mean, many of us are just mired in our own everyday worlds. That makes sense. But the reality is sometimes you just got to step back and realize how big this universe is, and you go, whoa. If God really made this, then he's like a lot more awesome than I ever think, and, and maybe I should give more attention to him. Uh, I was reading a book over my study break um, called Crazy Love by Francis Chan. It's one of the, the more popular books out there today within our, our Christian scene. And uh, in this book, he's a pastor in Southern California. He, uh, he directs you to his website where he shows some videos. That's kind of cool, keeps your attention and all that. And one of the videos he shows is called The Awe Factor of God. And I thought it was such an awesome, really neat way to show the vastness of the universe that we live in. And so I want to show it to you right now. This fits where we're going today. So look up here on the screen, and then we'll talk about how this fits. First of all, this is the earth, okay? That is just, just you're taken off from the earth from Southern California, and we're going we're gonna to rise up for a little bit here, okay? We're going to pull away from it. We're going to pull higher. Now, this is at about 10 kilometers. Like, if you climb Mount Everest, this is what you'd see. You'd see the curvature of the earth from that distance. Now, you're going to, we're going to climb up even higher. This is at 100 kilometers. And you're a fourth of the way to the space station now. This is what you'd see. If you get to this level, you're considered an astronaut. Just if you ever get there. Okay, now we're going 100,000 kilometers. 100,000 kilometers from the Earth, you go a fourth of the way to the moon, that's what the Earth would look like. Now we're going to pull away to a million kilometers. At a million kilometers, there's the moon. Okay? There's the moon. You can barely see the Earth. You're at a million kilometers now. You're past the, past the moon. And uh, now we're going to go to 100 million kilometers. 100 million kilometers. You're still not to the sun. The sun's 93 million miles away. But now we're going to go to 10 trillion kilometers. Ten, there's the sun. Okay. You just passed the sun. Now you would see all of the planets at 10 trillion kilometers. And now we're at 10 to the 15th power. That means 10 with 15 zeros. I don't know what that number is. 15 zeros. And the sun's just like a bright dot amidst other stars. And now we're going to 10 light years away. At 10 light years away... Come on, let's go. Zoom, there you go. Ten light years away. Now you just see the sun with like 11 other stars that are kind of its neighbors. You know, that, 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 that's our sun. 
And now we're going to go a thousand light years away. At a thousand light years away, you, you wouldn't even see our sun anymore. These are just a bunch of stars close to it in this cluster inside the Milky Way. Now we're going to zoom out even further, and that's the Milky Way we live in. See that cluster of stars? Those are about 100,000 stars that are closest to our sun. You can't see our sun anymore at this point. Now this is our Milky Way galaxy, and forget about the Earth. Okay, there's our Milky Way galaxy that we live in. Um, and we're just buried in there somewhere. And we're going to pull out even further. And you'll see that our galaxy is actually, it's, it's a big galaxy. And, uh, and all those other things you're seeing now are galaxies. And we're going to pull away 10 million light years now. His next scene is 10 million light years. Those are all galaxies you see amidst our Milky Way, several hundred galaxies. Now we're going to go 100 million light years away. This is the last one. We're going to zoom out to 100 million light years. Those are all clusters of galaxies. Galaxies and clusters of galaxies. You won't even see our Milky Way galaxy anymore amidst that. We don't have telescopes that go beyond that little sphere there. One of the things that the Bible makes clear is that God created all that we see and all that we do not see. I mean, he created all of this. And that he loves you as infinitesimally small as you might be. Peter's argument here is that when you consider the vastness of the heavens and the earth and the fact that God would intervene in this world, in this life, in such a way to make all of that, that certainly... He's willing to intervene in our lives and in our future as well. And that's why Peter says that the biblical response is that God has intervened in the past, and that gives us good confidence that he will in the future. And yet, if you're not convinced there, Peter gives a second argument. He's saying if creation isn't enough, realize that God also intervened after creation in the flood. He says the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Many of you remember the story from Sunday school. Noah and the ark and little animals going on it and all that. And then the rain came for 40 days and 40 nights. And, and all of a sudden the, the whole earth is filled with water. All the evil is wiped out because God was just disgusted with all the evil that was going on in the earth at that time. And he kind of rebooted the whole thing and started over. And Peter's saying, hey, if you think that God never intervenes in this world in such a way as to bring justice, think of the flood. So you got creation, you got the flood, and then notice he even mentions a third way that God has historically intervened in this world of ours, and it's contained in an easy-to-miss phrase that Peter uses twice here in verses 5 and 7 when he says that the world was created by the Word of God. Do you see that there in verse 5? The Word of God. And then in verse 7 he says that by this same word, judgment will come someday. And though this can refer to the fact that God simply spoke creation into being, Genesis 1 tells us that, that God spoke and creation happened, and that Peter could be saying that God's going to speak again and judgment will happen, what most commentators, Bible experts point out, is that, God, is that Peter's also probably referring to Christ here as the Word of God. And some of you are saying, what's that about? Well, John, Peter's contemporary, would say it this way. He'd say, in the beginning was the... Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. He's referring to Jesus, calling Him the Word. And then he says in verse 3, And all things were made through Him, this Word, this Jesus, and without Him nothing was made that was made. And so this Word, that's Jesus, the eternally existing Son of God, was present and active at creation. 
Peter's most likely hinting to that here, referencing this word in kind of a double-meaning sense, weaving Jesus into the conversation on God's intervention in this world. And so don't miss Peter's core argument here, folks, against the naturalists and deists who assert that all has been the same since the beginning, cause and effect in the closed universe, and that God doesn't seem to intervene in this world of ours. Peter argues that God intervened big time at creation, and that he entered in big time at the flood, and then he intervened the biggest time in the time of Christ. And he's basically arguing here, he's saying, don't tell me that God doesn't intervene in this world of ours. He made it for crying out loud. He's in total control of it. And he can and does step in regularly whenever he likes. That's what Peter's saying. He did so with the creation. He did so with the flood. He did so with Christ. And isn't it interesting, and I think this might be part of Peter's ploy here for us, that he only gives us three examples out of like how many in the Bible? Like hundreds, if not thousands of times that God intervened in people's lives. And it could be that what Peter is saying here is, hey, you know, here's three examples. Now you as fellow believers run with all the others. Tell people about all the times that God has intervened in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Saul, Solomon, Peter, James, John. I mean, you know the stories. Been to Sunday school lately? I mean, they're everywhere. And then consider the stories from history. I mean, we've got missionaries and theologians and people in other cultures who have seen God intervene amazingly in their lives. And then maybe consider your own life. Has God intervened in your life? Has he saved your soul? Has he forgiven you of your sin? Has he given you a clean conscience? Has he ever given you purpose and peace? Have you ever gotten insight and wisdom from him when you needed it the most? Has he ever comforted you when you were downcast? Has he ever given you hope? Has he ever intervened maybe physically in your life, being a God, showing himself as a God of provision when you needed it most? I mean, there's so many ways we can talk about God's intervention in our lives, historically and even now. And that's Peter's point, is if we can somehow convey to the scoffers that he does indeed intervene. I mean, creation, flood, and Christ just historically, and then follow the chain. He's saying, guess what? He does intervene, and then he goes on to give the one-two punch and say, because of that, he's probably going to intervene again someday with judgment. And that's the second part of his argument, that when, when the scoffers say, well, he doesn't seem to be intervening now. I mean, you say he's going to come again, but he sure seems to be taking his sweet time about it. So what makes you think it's going to happen in the future? Look at what Peter goes on to say in verses 8 through 10. I love this argument. He says, but don't overlook this one fact, beloved. <laughs> That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, his promise to come, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, and it will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed, which is that whole justice thing I was telling you guys about. You know, a passage like this is one that in our quiet times we're tempted to kind of gloss over, you know, because it's, it's kind of a nasty passage. Can we all admit that? I mean, it's telling us when he comes again, like, it's going to be a good thing for some people, right? But that's exactly Peter's point. You don't want to miss two things he's saying here to the retort, to, to, as a response to people who say, hey, he seems to sure be slow and is coming again. Peter's saying, well, two things you want to know. First, God's time is not your time, right? In other words, God doesn't count time like we do. I love that little passage that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. He's basically saying God exists in eternity, you don't. 
God exists outside of time. You're stuck in time. So as a guy who's viewing it from outside of time, guess what? A couple thousand years isn't all that long. In fact, if we take this to its logical extreme, what he's basically saying is it's only been two days since Christ resurrected and ascended into heaven, right? And that's what he's saying. For those of you living in the 21st century, it's been two days since Christ came here. That's how God's looking at it. Not a very long time in his economy. He's God, right? So that's the first argument Peter gives. Then the second, probably even more cogent argument that I love here, is he's saying not only does God count time differently than you do, but for those of you who are saying you want him to come back now, that if you're not right with Christ, if you've yet to become a follower of Jesus and experience the forgiveness of sin, it's not going to be a good day when he comes back and you don't want it to come soon. That's what he's saying. That's sobering, but we got to let that sink in. He's basically saying that, you know, Christians all the time say, I wish you'd come back tomorrow, I want to come back tomorrow. Peter, in a sense, is saying, don't say that. I mean, long for it, but don't say that, because when he comes, for those of you who know Christ, it'll be a great day. That's why Joel calls it a great day. But for those who don't know Christ, it's going to be a terrible day. That's why he calls it a terrible day. And, And that we should thank God that he's waiting patiently, what? For all to come to repentance. In a sense, Peter is saying, you know what? God is patient, he's loving, he's compassionate, he's kind, and he doesn't want to end it all now because if he ends it now, then for your neighbor, your friend, your coworker, your family member who has yet to find Christ, it won't be a good thing. For you it might be a good thing, but it won't be a good thing for them, and God loves them so much that he's waiting patiently for them to turn to him. He's showing his patience by not coming back right now. C.S. Lewis made this great argument um, giving the illustration of, of a play. I don't know if some of you remember, I've told you this before. But he said, life is like a grand play. You know, a picture of stage and all the actors on it. He said, God is the director. And you don't see the director in the play, do you? I mean, the director's off stage and directing the whole thing, making sure everything goes the way it should go. And, and so we're the play, God's the director. And, and he said, sometime, at some point, there's a curtain call and the play's over, right? And when the play's over, the director comes to the center of the stage and he shows himself or herself, takes a bow, and, and the thing's over. And he's saying, but when the play is over, it's over. It's done. And he's saying, if you can grab onto that analogy, you don't want the curtain call right now. You don't want God to say play over right now, because if he does, then the play is over. No more time for those who have yet to come and turn to Christ. That's what Peter's saying. Yeah, God is maybe slow in coming as far as your time goes, but that's your time. And guess what? He's loving and merciful and kind, and that's why he's choosing to forego justice now to give us all a chance to be reconciled to him through Christ. And so let's briefly recap, folks, where we've come from. Look up here on the screen. The centrality of our Christian hope is that just as Jesus came the first time, he's going to come again. That's our hope. The rebuttal is to dismiss this by saying that God does not intervene in this world. He's never intervened in the past, so why would you think he's going to come in the future? And the biblical response is that he has intervened with justice in the past, creation, flood, Christ, all the other stories. Pragmatically, it's true. Historically, it's true, which gives us great evidence that it's going to happen again in the future. And yet there's one thing left unsaid. I love it. That the Bible always brings us back around to you and me. Did you know that? That the Bible never lets us weasel out of a passage just intellectually understanding something and say, oh, Pastor, that was a good sermon. It always comes back to the fact of telling you and I to do something. So are you ready for this? It's point number four, and that is that Peter says our job in the meanwhile is to live holy and to look expectantly for his return. If you don't hear anything else today, hear this. 
that our job, you and me, as followers of Jesus, is to live holy and to look expectantly for his return. Look at how he caps this off in verses 11 to 13. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And now, folks, more than anything else, please simply see here that Peter is telling us that our job while we wait for Christ's return, while we experience now and then his intervention in our lives, is to live holy and look expectantly. And to have the kind of lives that please him. As we follow him, obey him, love him, pray to him, pour into others, serving them, all the while longing for his return. And this is what Christian writers for years have talked about the difference between an eternal mindset versus a temporal one. Simply put, that you and I are not to think just here and now. We're to long for his return, think eternally, waiting for his return as we also stay grounded here, living in a holy and godly way. And what I want to leave you with here this morning is that the beauty of this is that when the church, and I mean you and I, learn to live like this, godly and holy and with an eternal mindset, it has a profound effect on those around us. Have you ever noticed that? It has a profound effect on those around us because when they see our transformed lives, the very real hope that we have in this God that we serve, instead of scoffing, the Bible says some are going to be drawn to God through our lives. And when they are, it will make all the difference, obviously for them and even for us. And that when we live this hope that we have, giving cogent answers, yes, the Bible says that people will see the transformation in us and turn to him, and now it's come full circle. I want to close with a story that I, I think is going to encourage you, something that just happened recently across the ocean in Britain that has just kind of shocked the uh, academic and, and cultural circles there. Uh, one of the most famous current British philosophers is a guy by the name of A.N. Wilson. You've probably never heard of him. I really haven't either. But in the British scene, he's a popular philosopher and writes regular columns and books and all that. And he's one of the modern-day scoffers and mockers of Christianity. In the British scene, I mean, just for years, he's made fun of Christians and, and even come out against them. He was actually raised in the church, raised to know Jesus. But early on, people thought he actually might become the next C.S. Lewis. Early on, he just rejected Christ and said, ah, religion's for a bunch of weak nillies and a bunch of hogwash and even written books against it. As late as 2004, he wrote a book called Jesus, in which he talked about how Jesus is an utterly failed Messiah. I mean, the guy is truly a modern-day mocker. Until about six months ago. It was Palm Sunday. When we were celebrating Palm Sunday here last April, and Joel Stoll was speaking, Ann Wilson decided to go to church. And when he went to church that day, he walked out a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. I mean, totally turned around, a 180, absolutely convinced of Christ, and he didn't just stop there. Six days later, he wrote an op-ed piece. You can find it online in one of Britain's most prestigious newspapers called the Daily Mail. And in this op-ed piece, he told about what happened that Palm Sunday and even why he decided to turn back to Christ. I want to close by reading you a portion of his op-ed piece because it's a great challenge, great hope to you and I when it comes to the scoffers around us. Listen to what he says. This is his words. He says, when I took part in the procession last Sunday and heard the gospel being chanted, I assented to it with complete simplicity. He says, my own return to faith has surprised no one more than myself. Why did I return to it? Partially, perhaps, it is no more than the confidence I have gained with age. 
But there's more to it than that. My belief has come about in a large measure because of the lives and examples of people I have known. Not the famous, not the saints, but friends and relations who have lived and even faced death in light of the resurrection story or even in the quiet acceptance that they have a future after they die. He goes on to say, sadly, the secularists have all but accepted that only stupid people actually believe in Christianity, and that the few intelligent people left in churches are only there for the music or believe in all, in all of it in some sort of symbolic and contorted way, which exa when examined turns out to not be belief after all. As a matter of fact, I'm sure the opposite is the case, that the materialistic, atheistic view that we have today is not merely an arid creed, but totally irrational. He goes on to say materialistic atheism says that we are just a collection of chemicals. It has no answer whatsoever to the question of how we should be capable of love or heroism or poetry if we are simply animated pieces of meat. The resurrection, he says, which proclaims that matter and spirit are mysteriously conjoined is the ultimate key to who we are. It confronts us with an extraordinarily haunting story of Jesus. J.S. Bach believed the story and set it to music. Most of the greatest writers and thinkers of the past 1,500 years have also believed it. He says, but an even stronger argument is the way that Christian faith transforms individual lives, the lives of the men and women with whom you mingle with on a daily basis, the man, woman, or child next to you in church tomorrow morning. What changed A.N. Wilson's life? You did. His friends did. His family did. Simple people walking with Jesus. Given a cogent answer, as we've seen today, as Peter gives us to why we believe in an interventionist God in our lives, but even more so, allowing him to change and transform our lives. Somebody once said that you might be the only epistle that another person reads. And it's true. The reality is you and I are going forth today into Scottsdale, Phoenix, Mesa, Chandler, Gilbert, Glendale, wherever you live, or back where you've been vacationing. Well, you wouldn't be vacationing here now, but if you were... Well, you're an idiot, but we're glad that you're here. And uh, the reality is, is that you're going to go back as an idiot to where you were. And, and God, who uses idiots, is going to use you as a transformed life. Just don't tell people you vacationed in Phoenix in July. That uh, you have a transformed life. And that's what he does. And that's what gives me great hope in my life and for our city. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. Thank you that once again in your word... You take us through a flow of thought that's not just reasonable, it doesn't just make sense, but it's eminently livable. And God, that's what we're all looking for. We're looking for a faith that adds grit and teeth, and adds a meat to our life, something we can do Monday through Saturday, and we've been shown that today. God, we're going to face scoffers and mockers this week. If we're at all vocal, if we're all, at all honest about our faith, there's going to be people out there who are lost, who have, who have seemingly good hearts, but man, they just don't get it. So Father, I pray that we'd love them, that we'd honor them, that we'd we, we, we'd show them care and, and concern that we would not be one of these kinds of Christians that just sort of disses them and makes them feel bad and mocks in return. May we not do that, God. But may the, 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 the cogency of our understanding of you as well as the transformational characters of our lives convince them. Use us that way, we pray. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. We cling to it. We think eternally. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.